Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. You know what a WikiHole is. We've all been there. You look up a certain celebrity to see how tall they are and whether they've said anything cringe about vaccines. Before you know it, you're 10 minutes into reading about something called a toast sandwich. That's basically what it's like to listen to WikiHole, only funnier. Every episode is a new rabbit hole to explore with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends, loaded with unforgettable new information you'll literally never need to know. And that's why it's great. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Usually each episode, a comedian plays a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses all that went into it. But periodically, I I try to do episodes that can help you, my my dear, dear listener, get a fuller sense of the comedy world. So this week, I have a conversation with Jason Zinneman, the New York Times comedy columnist, a gig he's held for a decade. I remember the exact day I learned Jason got that gig. Splitsider, the comedy blog I had been contributing to for a few months, ran an interview with him, and it was a big deal to me. Why, uh, you ask? Engaged. I appreciate it. Because I wanted to write about comedy professionally, and there was a dearth of examples of people writing full-time about comedy for major publications. Jason was the first person to do it at the Times. There's William Noldeseeder, who had the gig at the LA Times in the late 70s, Laurie Stone at the Village Voice in the late 80s and early 90s, And then it was just an assortment of theater critics or TV critics who would take on a review here and there. That's really it. There have been freelancers and bloggers, your your Sean McCarthy's, but with Jason, a major publication decided to value comedy like any other art form. So it was a big deal. And you know, I can do this podcast partly as a result. So to mark 10 years in the role, Jason and I had a conversation about what we've noticed and what has changed over the last decade of covering comedy. Unlike most episodes, we're not going to start with a joke, but there will be clips throughout. So here is Jason Zinneman. I am here with Jason Zinneman. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Um, Starting out, you know, sometimes I get asked, you know, if I was a comedy fan growing up and my answer sort of kind of in in that like being a, you know, in that being a comedy fan didn't really exist in the way that being a fan of other things existed like the word comedy nerd first didn't appear in the new york times until 2009 uh Mm. in an article about dimitri martin and about how he wasn't a comedy nerd oddly enough the first time it appeared in new york magazine was also in an article about dimitri martin in 2009 and about how he wasn't a comedy nerd (laughs) the first time yeah the first time it appeared in the new yorker was in late 2008 so like a basically a month beforehand in a zadie smith article about how how her dad was a comedy nerd which makes me think like maybe it's a British term. The point being, I wasn't a comedy nerd because comedy nerds didn't exist. Uh, but I was something. Uh, this is all to say, what was your relationship to comedy growing up? 
I was not a comedy nerd. Um, I, I mean, I, in retrospect, I, I of course consumed a tremendous amount yeah, of comedy. Yeah. But if, but um, I uh, was 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 a film and theater nerd. Um, there, there, there was. A, I mean, I grew up around theater because that's what my my mom started a theater, and uh, so that was sort of just in the air. And because that's a little unusual for young people to be exposed to that much theater, I was sort of by default a theater nerd. Um, yeah. um, but that wasn't what I I, I loved. Um, I definitely um, was more of a – I was obsessive about film. And uh, and then – but then in your retrospect, you know, like something like David Letterman, which I eventually wrote a book on, um, was something I was wildly obsessive about. And, you know, you know I, I – I, was a, felt felt that I had a kind of a that that was part of my identity and something that I, um, you know, watched scrupulously. But the, to the to the way that nerd is used now, um, you know, I, I I sort of had pretty Catholic taste that, but I was nerdy about a few things like David yeah. Letterman or Bob Dylan, um, and um, but I wasn't you know like I liked The Simpsons, but I wasn't. There were people who knew more about The Simpsons than I did. I liked Seinfeld, but there were people who knew more about Seinfeld than I did. That um, so um, so that's where I would. That's where, and then and then as I got older, you know, where my my first professional sort of culture stuff was about books and theater. So it wasn't yeah. really comedy. Yeah, I mean, I think it gets into. You how no one would even think to like oh I want, maybe I want to be a journalist let me start writing about comedy because you wouldn't even it wouldn't I imagine wouldn't even dawn on someone because like where would someone do it you know so which gets to sort of set the stage of starting the on comedy column what was happening in comedy and what was happening in the New York Times and how did that all happen sort of at once where it came to this. I wish I had like a more satisfying answer to this because I think there's a lot I don't know. I know from yeah. my point of view that I had been at the Times for a number of years covering theater and other things. And at that point, I was sort of a third string theater critic. Um, uh, in some ways, that led me to review a bunch of comedy. Like I wrote about UCB. I was probably the first person to review something at UCB. Um but that was theater. Um, I got a call from um, the uh, then head of arts saying they want to start this new column focused on um, comedy and they wanted feedback on how to do that. Yeah. And he was interested. And I mean, I remember I had just published my first book. Did they know you liked comedy? Like, why was you why were the reason why did they ask you? I, I honestly don't know. Well, I have two theories. One is I had just come out with a book mm-hmm. um, and like I was sort of felt like I was outgrowing what I what they were mm-hmm. giving me. Um, and I do think writing a book makes, you know, sort of puts you on a different maybe maybe people are looking at me a little bit differently. Yeah, but yeah. then it was also the case that I had just written this pretty like ambitious um uh, r- reported. I, I had two arts and leisure covers in a row covering Cirque du Soleil, um, and I spent a couple of weeks in, up in Montreal. And this was one where I worked closely with this editor who offered me the job. I think he got to know me a little bit in the process of mm-hmm. working on these pieces, which were at the time the, the, the idea was like I, 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 you know, Cirque du Soleil had sold more tickets that year than all Broadway shows combined, and we had not covered them. Sort mm-hmm. of like. The situation with stand-up, like yeah, yeah. stand-up at all these incredible performers, all these clubs, which we hadn't been 
covering. Um, and so I kind of made the case for that. And then uh, he assigned me to like do this, you know, go to Montreal, spend all this time with, um, look into the history, do this. And those pieces came out and, and they were well received. And then not long after that, he came to me with this idea, which, you know, I'm uh, grateful for because uh, it, it definitely wasn't, that wasn't my idea. Although yeah. he he did present, among the many things that I'm grateful for is that he presented it in this way, which was sort of like, all right, he, here's the overarching idea, but how do we do this? Mm-hmm. And then I, then I sort of, uh, and you know, this had happened. I had had other columns before that hadn't been done as well, but this struck me as such an obviously good idea. Um, and then I spent a couple months going to clubs and going to shows and thinking about what stories and meeting with people and what, what stories haven't been in the paper that should, what, what would it look like to systematically cover comedy, um, and I wrote up a big memo and there was a big meeting with a bunch of people from arts and, and I floated these ideas and they were like, all right, go. Where So where was comedy at that time? I feel like that was whatever is 2011. Yeah. So it's like there's Louis, right? I think Louis probably the big thing happening. Louis and- was the big thing happening. In fact, I remember <laughs> Splitsider interviewed me. Yeah, um, which was which was a website that covered comedy back then that Jesse was a part of. Yeah, um, yeah. And they asked, they said, I think, oh, did they start this column because of the success of Louis? Uh, and, you know, th- there's no evidence of that. But it is true that L- Louis was being covered by the rest of the paper. I remember David Carr wrote a big piece of when he um, released a special on his own, the idea yeah. that he was like building this new business model. So th- there was there was him. But, you know, in retrospect, you know, and you, you sort of pointed this out when you say like 2009 was the first time they used the word com- the phrase com- comedy nerd in the Times and other, other places. And, you know, so much happened in 2000. 2009 is also when if you most people got on, most institutions got on Twitter. Yeah. If you look at like comedy clubs, the first big stars on Twitter started in 2009. That's a massive turning point. That's when podcasts really yep. started. I think that might be where Marin and... Yeah, um, WTF is 2009. Comedy didn't Bang Rogan Bang, start in 2009? You know, when I first wrote that the the thing about how 2009 was this big year, I didn't, I didn't know that Joe Rogan was going to be a big podcaster, so I never looked up to see when he started. I think it's around that time. Um, and uh, so you have podcasts, Twitter, these forms that, and I think this might be a theme of, you know, my tenure of like 10 years of, of, of comedy is that um, those are forms that comedians would end up dominating. Yeah. There, it, that wasn't a sure thing in 2009. It was like maybe other artists would, would end up, you know, taking off with those forms. Well, so that happened in 2009. And then you also had people like Maria Banford self-releasing a special and then someone like Louie doing it later. Those were comedians were starting to do that. Um, and and then, you know, I think it just as big as at that time, improv was, was starting to get mm-hmm. on the radar of the broader culture in a way um, that people were flocking to and paying attention to. And, I, you know, it's one of the funny things. I, I went back and looked at my sort of early columns and there was this sense, which I don't really have as much anymore, that first of all, the, the column is going to be improv and stand up and storytelling. I hardly yeah. ever cover storytelling <laughs> anymore. But that was this, I was very like, you know, platform agnostic, you know, mm-hmm. the, it's going to be all these things. And, um, and I was very committed in part because of my background in theater to the idea of it being a live form. So, yeah. 
one early rule which I've dispensed with sure. is that I'll only write about somebody who like has a special coming out or whatever if I'd seen them live mm. and could and I would make an effort to incorporate something of that into into that because I had this very you know passionate but wrongheaded belief that um, that you know comedy but what's happened over the last ten years is, is comedy has become more and more digital. So what you really did not have is comedy being criticized and written about in the context of itself, really, which is um, a thing that essentially like you and me, Meg, all the people that are sort of doing it now are somewhat figuring out what that even means to do because there isn't formal history of writing about it. Like, you know, we talked a little bit before about the words for funny. Right. The, there's like there's not like food criticism has like centuries of how people describe right. delicious soup. And and I and, and I like any I almost never use the word hilarious or any any synonym to me seems so try hard. And right. like it reads like someone trying to use a synonym. Um, yes, it's it's no, you're it's it's one of those like nuts and bolts things about the challenge of the job that people don't really realize. But yeah, you don't want to use the same words over and over again. And, um, and also just the idea of like, all right, how do you review something? Can you review something? Are there other things besides being funny that matter? And of course mm-hmm. there are, but that, so that in itself is something, um, I, I, you know, but the language is, you know, like I recently wrote a piece on Mort Saul after he died and I, I looked at the piece. first mention of the New York times of Mort Saul, which was written by a theater critic, Brooks Atkinson. And he, re- I put this in the piece. They, they referred to him as a saloon talker. That was his... <laughs> That was what they call, he called a stand-up. Oh, one other thing the president has inherited, and that's J. Edgar Hoover, who is now entering his 45th year of federal service. And he's given his, his life literally to his country. And uh, the closest Hoover came to ever losing the job, he was appointed, some of you younger people really flip out at this, he was appointed in 1924 uh, by what I consider to be a far-sighted president who knew that crime would rise. And uh, it's risen every year in direct proportion to the budget of the FBI. They don't seem to ever get, you know, it's like... (laughs) So, Hoover, the closest he came to losing his job is when Gene McCarthy said he would fire him, which was a capricious uh, grab for power in this country, trying to woo the criminal vote. Are there any groups we haven't offended? And, you know, there's... There's a lot of ways to look at that, but essentially it's a snotty yeah. uh, phrase from a theater critic who looks down his nose on, at the art form. Um, and um, so that's, you know, that, I mean, I think you're right that you also don't have, you know, music criticism. There were, you know, there's an interesting parallel between like pop music critic, which, you know, did not all have this long history mm-hmm. of criticism, but then a few figures emerged who were very respected and had very high standards and, and were like loomed large and they, some people hated them. Some people didn't. And, um, and um, it's bizarre that, 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 that doesn't, that didn't exist in the, for, for comedy. Yeah. Did you, you know, the, um, you know, dead frog can't analyze comedy. You ruin comedy by analyzing comedians pushing back their if they're just jokes. Well, blah, blah, blah. Did you did you get pushback at the beginning? I mean, I know you did. I mean, how could you not? I I still yes, get pushback. Yes. I was, but like I got a ton of pushback. Yeah. Well, many different kinds of. But one thing I remember I, looking back is when they announced 
that I was I, I was gonna I was doing this, or maybe after my first column. These two comedians who ran a website, you can still find this art these article. It's called Shecky Magazine. Do you know mm-hmm. that? No, no. Oh, so they ran a piece about me being like comedians are like you know, excited that they're getting some attention. They're wrong. This is bad news. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. If you look at I just look, I just looked back at their argument and they were saying like, Jay, you know, Jason Zinnemann is bad for the comedy because we had the system before where the audience would tell you yeah. whether something's good or bad. And um, now people are going, he's going to have, you know, too much power and people are going, he, he's going to give bad reviews for people's career. It's going to be bad for comedians. Um, and uh, at the time, obviously, this was this was I disagreed with it and still do, sure. and it's annoying. <laughs> but in in retrospect, it is a um, it's a legitimate. It's something that I think critics have to engage with. They have to. Yeah. I think now more than ever, this is not true of just comedy of all critics. When you know the the media is so democratized, you have to kind of justify your existence, and you have to ask your you have to you have to sort of. Um, uh, you know, ask yourself the question: What purpose am I serving here? What 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 am what am I giving? And you know, the the first response, of course, right, is that this whole critique from Checking Magazine was premised on the idea of what is good or bad for yeah. comedians, right? Now, my the my central concern is what's good or bad for my readers. I mm-hmm. happen to believe that having a, a healthy critical sphere is incredibly good for comedians and the art form of comedy but um that 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 was one early that was like a welcome to comedy thing (laughs) and you know they were um yeah there was other definite blowback and you know and uh you know also like uh, legit criticism which is part of it you know i think one i always i've always thought this that like one of the job one of our jobs is to be like the clown in the dunking booth like Mm -hmm. You, you, you know, our job isn't to not only is our job, should we be able to take criticism, but part of our purpose is to put something out and you, you've done this and you know, like yeah. you, you, you take a strong position on something and people can define their own ideas in opposition to it. That's tremendously valuable. That's yeah. tremendously valuable. Um, so um, anyways, that's that 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 comes with the territory. Yeah. I mean, I there's a there's a few things, but I, I will say, at least to this question, at least I've noticed as you know 10 years is a long enough time that new comedians started after we have been writing about comedy or have we been talking about comedy and to those comedians it's cool it's great they appreciate it i mean like since the pandemic i've spoken to more young comedians like people who've been doing it less than six years or even maybe five years since i started the podcast and they're like i love the podcast it's really useful you're like oh we forget that there was a time where there's essentially nothing, there's no way to know how to do comedy. There's nothing to know anything about it except for other comedians and the opinions. And and I can't remember who said it, but like if you're getting advice for comedians, all they're doing is trying to tell you how to be more like them. They're not actually giving you <laughs> advice that's useful. And have you noticed that also that like generally there there's still some pushback? Obviously, I get it all the time, but like there is now a new new generation of comedians who are appreciative who see it as a benchmark it is a goal they want they dream of reviews or whatever to be considered by you no question no question yeah. i mean i think that's uh for for uh, i mean i i think most the truth is most comedians um are glad to get coverage yeah and and they're savvy look 
a lot of comedian, a lot of artists, period, are, you know, don't like the press or criticism. But in, in my experience also, and, you know, one thing I did find different than theater, in theater, there's a kind of ethic of you don't respond to critics. Hmm. Sometimes you, I've definitely had experiences where I have had that, um, but, but rare. Comedy, that, because there isn't a history of this stuff, and again, I'm not complaining. I'm just stating yeah. a fact. I, I've got a tremendous amount of feedback um, from comedians. And usually I'm like, you know, I, I find that as really interesting conversations. And people are, um, you know, one thing, you know, comedians are used maybe more so than, than theater artists to feedback because uh, yeah. they're paying attention to the audience, right? So I also think that, as you suggest, one of the interesting things about the last 10 years is I've seen comedians at the beginning of the career when they were unknowns or nobody. And I've seen them, some of them go on to, to be like the most yeah. famous people in the culture. And so it's one thing to start as somebody, a critic writing about who you never heard of. But, you know, at this point now, first of all, I've, I've written about a lot of people early and, you know, then they, then they get bigger. And then, uh, you know, that changes your relationship to this whole scene as well. I yeah. find that one of the most interesting things about doing this for a while is that you see the arcs of different careers and which ones go up and which ones go down and why people make it and why people don't. And, um, and that to me is, is sort of endlessly fascinating. Um, and I think, you know, when I, I don't know what your experience was, but when I started, I had all these, I wanted to learn a lot fast. So yeah. I had a bunch of story ideas that didn't really matter about who the people were, but I just like, I wanted to be embedded mm -hmm. in a writer's room at the beginning of a show, yeah. which I did with uh, Inside Amy Schumer, which was tremendously valuable to watch. I mean, in retrospect, also, it was a fascinating cross-section of people, you know, Tignatero, Jesse Klein, Gabe Liebman, Kurt Metzger, Amy Schumer, Dan Powell, who's responsible for a lot of your yeah, favorite yeah, yeah. shows out there. Um, all in this room, like on a daily, tr figuring out, sketches that was a really great learning experience i wanted to follow a, a evolution of a joke where i follow one comic do tell a joke for the first time for a while i did that with mike kaplan which was learned a lot i i did a piece on a booker that was another thing i wanted Th those are like at the beginning of my stint i had a lot more of that stuff and um now i think i i do that a little bit less i almost think i should do maybe because because of course the world changes there's different, there's different things that happen. There's different processes, but, um, well, I mean, at minimum, at first you were literally teaching, especially in New York times audience of like, what is, what is comedy? How, how does it work? Like the basics of there, there was a time it has actually slowed down, but there would be a while where there'd be big profiles of stand up comedians. And they would all be like, can you believe that they work every night on their jokes? Like, and they, and this would be like, part of a fawning portrait of how hard they work which would right. be it'd be it would, over and over again can you like they are working and they're changing the words as they go and it's like <laughs> until everyone knows that is like the bare minimum right then you, you it's hard to then just analyze as a, a pure only analyze as an art form because it, you have to have the basic idea of you know it'd be like if no one had ever written about art before. And someone's like, do you know that sometimes people do abstract images? Like you have to just sort of like lay out the basics. Yep. I've come to think, and I, I wonder what you think about it. I come to think that the, the hardest part of my job and the most, in some ways the most important that people don't see is that is as an act of translation mm -hmm. that like you're, the hardest thing is to communicate 
for a broad audience that doesn't know that, doesn't know that comedians are working on their, you know, doesn't know all the, the, the inside baseball stuff in a way that they can understand, but that doesn't dumb it down. So, yeah. so the comedy nerds and the people who do know all that stuff uh, don't feel like they're being condescended to. That is the, that's the job of the, the critic and the journalist. And that's, the, there's a lot of smart people who could write, who can analyze comedy. And there's a lot of people who can give their opinions on whether they like somebody or not. But that act of translation actually is the, is the job. Yeah, that, I remember there was a time, I can't remember who, maybe it was Ian Carmel tweeted at both of us asking us if we'd ever tried stand-up. And I believe you said you did. And I said I did, but it wasn't for the part. It wasn't because I want to be a journalist. It was like another reason. And I, Essentially, I had jokes, and my friend, who was a comedian, is like, "Just tell these jokes. I don't want to hear about your jokes anymore." But, um, the point that I, I think we both made, which is like, our job is not to better understand how comedy works; it's to better be able to communicate to the audience how we are. We work for the audience, the readers. We don't work for comedians, right? And we could have a conversation for hours about the mechanics of writing stories that is analogous to what they do about like. Writing a lead. I could talk yeah. for hours on the, how hard it is and the many different, right? There's a hundred different ways you could write a lead to how, how you use quotations, how yeah. you use, you know, how you make an argument, the, the, the multiple ways you can reveal your opinion in a piece. There's as much nuance in what you do and what um, journalists do as what comedians do, right? Yeah. So, um, yes, it's like it is tremendously useful to talk to comedians about their craft and to yeah. hear podcasts, your podcast in particular, to, to, it's tremendously useful. But the, the yeah. second part of the translation is how do you figure out how to write a story for whatever publication you have to a broad audience or whatever audience you have in a way that's entertaining, you know, passionate, argumentative, et cetera, um, that connects, that, that, that is both specific but also makes broader points. That's the, re that's the real challenging part. Yeah. The thing that I, I I wanted to ask you about because essentially like I threw up my hands. I, I got to a point where I was, I was this is I think 2017. I was doing the best specials of the year list, and I was just like going in circles of like what is good, what is best, what is it my what is my what is the value of my opinion as a person who watches a hundred specials of a year to a person who watches two. Like right. I I I was like I what's funny to me is based on what is surprising after watching a hundred jokes. But if you've not watched those a hundred jokes, right, that right. um then the first joke is funny to you. And and as a result, I essentially stopped writing like reviews. I was luckily I was able to do interviews and I do sort of more abstract stuff. Um but you obviously are still in the weeds. How do you manage that? Well I mean you put your finger on like one of the real problems of the form but it's not specific to to comedy sure. it's true of how do you give respect to reality television which is a form mm. that has good and bad forms right there's and it has it it's, it's sophisticated in its own in its own way while also being like you know shakespeare is better like shakespeare like I, you could like <laughs> you shakespeare is better than reality television that doesn't mean that you're a snob who doesn't say the reality this is um, and, uh, there's a tension, um, in that I think you can't, I, I, you know, this speaks to what you're, you're asking. I, I try to keep in my head that audience member who goes to one special a year. Yeah. 
Um, I think it's really important to not forget that person. And um, but to the, I also am like to what is my value added here, right? Yeah. Like what like it is. It's uh, if you want like an ordinary you know civilian's opinion, it's not hard to find them. Yeah, yeah. So my added value is putting this in. I, I bring a well of experience. I can make these. I can engage with this work in a deeper way because I see it in the context of a tradition. I can make connections to broader, you know, uh, either political, moral, historical, aesthetic context. Yeah. You know, those are the kind of things that I'm, I should try to do to justify my existence. Um, but, you know, it, it's a flawed form. It's it, there, There's going to be, people are, yeah. are, are going to be like, well, what do you mean? This was hilarious. I, I you know, and I, thing that I've seen a million times. And, and this gets to like, I remember when I was a young critic, I, like many young critics, hated older critics. Um, (laughs) and I remember specifically being a young theater critic and there was one theater critic who had been around forever. And when he would review Hamlet, he would write about the six other, the six other Hamlets or the the 50 other Hamlets he'd written. And I would always be like, I want to know what's on the stage. What do you see on the stage? Don't, don't give me your resume of Hamlets. Tell me on the stage. Um, and, you know, there is a germ of truth in that, which is that experience can be a negative. Um, yeah. Now, of course, as this will shock people, but as I've gotten older, I've come to see the other side of that. <laughs> and I've rationalized that experience isn't all bad. Um, I think, but I think it's something I think about a lot. I think yeah. that you have to write for um, the novice as well. And I think the solution in, in short, and this is a, a peculiar thing about the job, I think you need to be both incredibly arrogant and incredibly humble mm-hmm. um, because you need it's, it takes a remarkable amount of arrogance to think that somebody else should listen to what you have to say like yeah. about Bo Burnham which everyone's got an opinion on right <laughs> or John Mulaney like you're ev- everyone in your family's got an opinion on them why why should you've got to have a certain and, and that arrogance has to be earned through hard work and study yeah. and thinking but then you also have to be incredibly humble because you if you're not open to new things if you're not open to learning and to being curious about things you don't already know or to things or to be open to the best argument that is against yours, then you become a very calcified, boring writer. Um, So how do you get both? How do you, how are you both humble and arrogant at the same time? It's fucking, it's, it's a constant struggle. (laughs) Um, You know, Sometimes I read, read writing about comedy from people who don't normally write about comedy, and, and I often dislike it. Um, but if one can believe it, before you or I were people who wrote normally about comedy, we were people who didn't do that because that's you have to start at some point. Yeah. Um, now knowing, when you look back, what do you think you got wrong? Like, what do you think the you of the first year who was writing as essentially a new person writing about comedy, that if you read, you're like, that's a new person writing about comedy and this is whatever correct is. You know, how is that? I mean, ultimately it's a question of how you change, but from the perspective of like what was incorrect? That's a really good question. I could, I could answer that even more recently of what I got wrong. Um, I mean, I get, a, I've gotten a lot of things wrong and sure. I've, I've, my opinions have, have changed um, over the years. I think I was, um, but I'll take a big example because I mean, it's, you, you want to like I might as well like be uh, <laughs> might as well go large. I did a cover story for Arts and Leisure, I think, in 2017, which was basically like the comedy boom is going to bust, 
right? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. People love this piece. This was like a very well-received piece. Um, I disagreed I, at the time, but I, I don't know if I said anything. But. Oh, okay. So maybe uh, maybe you, you, you saw it before I did. But um, that was a piece that I think I got wrong because I don't look back on like things where like, oh, I liked this comedian, um, but other people didn't like it and they became famous. That's not yeah. wrong. That's just yeah, my yeah. opinion. That was a piece where I, when I look at that piece, I, I had the the right um, thrust in the piece, but it wasn't in the foreground of it. So the I, I didn't say like the comedy boom was going to bust. I said the comedy boom, there's signs that it might bust, and this is why it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and then I went into this whole historical thing. When actually the truth is, is that the 80s comedy, this is my opinion now. I mean, there's people out of different takes, but that the 80s comedy boom was ultimately about real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was about, um, you know, club clubs building and then clubs closing. I mean, it's about other things, but they were, that was the center of it. Yeah. That's the common narrative of the center. Of it. And the current boom is something, uh, and I know you, I think you don't like, even like the framing of boom and bust. Yeah. I think booms is a misnomer. I, I think I'd be disagree because I don't mind it, but I think this is my take on it, which is that it's now more seismic than that because it is, um, it's not about real estate. It's about uh, technology and and, d- yeah. and the current boom is, is all about, in the last 10 years, frankly, are about these technological shifts that have dramatically changed um, the landscape and made specific platforms less important. The club is no longer as central as yeah. it was, and neither is the alt rooms or whatever. The And I guess to I'll just try to be very brief about my take on this, which is that my take is that... Um, what the last 10 years have shown is that technology has constantly changed platforms and comedians are better yep. equipped to adjust than any other artists. And that is why they're doing arguably better than other artists with, through all these disruptions. Yeah. That I think if I could rewrite it, that would be, a, there's actually, I actually have a quote from like a club owner at the end who basically says that, but I wish I was clear on that at the front. So I think that was a, a failure of a piece. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, in many ways, the comedy club was a technological, isn't it? Is a cultural technological advancement in some ways. And because of the nature of how technology works, it is exponentially increasing. And then as a result, by the time anything might have soured, there's a new technological advancement that sort of, and comedians are so quick to get to it, Yep. that it has made it just, you know, like, even when I wrote the piece calling it a comedy boom in that we're, hey, we're in a comedy boom in 2012 or 2013, which, like, it's so funny. Like, I was like, I coined the phrase second comedy boom. Like, it was, like, a big thing to coin. It's, like, literally saying a comedy boom. And then I remember, so I was like, well, it's kind of the third if you count the comedy record boom. I was like, no one counts the comedy record boom in the 60s. <laughs> but sure. The point being, I was like, even that piece, I mentioned technology, but I'm like, what's notable is all these venues and all these shows. And there's all essentially just being, like, alternative comedy is more widespread. But the truth is... That is happening, and it's still vibrant. And but what is making it so comedy is so is vital, and there's a sort of cross pollination across the country of like what um, contemporary comedy looks like is technology. It's both. It's from Netflix to TikTok, like it's the, the, everything, and the way there's different ways to get to it. However, you like it, comedy has now become the, a main genre of every platform. Which you yep. can't really say the same for 
theater or music or like 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 there aren't movies on tiktok obviously because movies so rigidly define what a movie is yes obviously like and filmmakers really push back and like yes there's stand-ups who go like people on tiktok aren't real comedians but they sound so wrong at this point like we've been hearing that forever yep but there's a generation too used to the internet and too normalized on that being a part of it and that to be a comedian now and like i feel like you probably talk to young comedians periodically and i'm just like i don't know don't be mad that someone found success doing a thing ultimately success is a completely separate thing than what you're trying to pursue as a career like your art form is maturing try different things celebrity is unrelated you can't control what the market wants from you you just it's just like there's gonna be more things and like right now it's it's seemingly is tiktok and 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 i don't know what's next but also i think to connect to what you're you said early earlier this is also part of the reason why you and i and the other people in the comedy press i i and i my opinion are more important because Mm -hmm. the world is so fragmented yeah the comedy world that i mean it wasn't it was always the case that it was hard for someone in the form to analyze their own peers terribly but now it's like what is this? Is Chris Rock on TikTok and watching? Like, it's uh, this one of the hardest parts of our job is like not just keeping an eye on all this stuff, yeah. on all the different platforms, but actually respectfully understanding the distinctions and what's good and bad and getting, getting in. You know, it's when you think, I mean, this is, you know, when I went back and looked at what the situation was when I started, there was no original Netflix specials when I started. It's crazy. I mean, the. the the, they did live at Purple my, Onion, but it was a DVD only release. Yeah, it was. I mean, and obviously there was no HBO Max special, whatever that, you know, the, um, the, it's just the internet just so fundamentally changed um, uh, the parameters of, I mean, the other thing I know is, again, I, in the first column I wrote, I, I said, and I think this was true at the time, um, stand-up is the only major art form in which most American critics don't take performers seriously until they leave the field. Mm-hmm. Right, so Jerry Seinfeld and Louis C.K. needed television shows to really receive notice. Da, da, da. That's clearly not true anymore, right? Now, uh, you know, people like Hannah Gatsby or whatever, she didn't need to be in a movie to get talked yeah. about. And you know, whatever we th- want to th- say about Dave Chappelle, um, everybody's talking about this guy's stand-up yeah, special. Yeah, yeah. It's not a movie, that he did, you know, and he left all that to do stand-up and. And it's getting, it is getting reviewed by all sorts of smart people and all sorts of publications. Um, the, 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 the amount that the form has shifted and the amount it's, um, is radical. And I, I, I do think that is fundamentally at, the, at its core about, about technology. Yeah. I, I da- can't say the names of either people in this story because they're incredibly famous. But one famous person, young famous person, asked another famous person if they think they need to get like a TV show to like really keep on their career. And the older famous person is like, yeah, I think so. And then a couple years passed, the younger famous person put out a special and the older person emailed them to be like, actually, no, it's changed. Like this person who the older person who, you know, usually the older guard of stand up, like they're so cynical about its lack of appeal. Clearly he was like, or that's too late. It's a heat. Anyway, I was trying to <laughs> say them and then I realized I messed up. Well, it's like, oh, something something is different is happening. And 
I don't know. I mean, it's you can also just see with ticket sales, the amount of people who can sell large venues. You know, I, I in 2012 or whenever I wrote the piece, essentially like before 2009, a handful of people were able to play Madison Square Garden. It was like maybe right. three people. And then since 2009, I don't know, 20 have people who, you know, like, and it's just going to people you, and you can even see it. You can see people who are like, oh, wow, they're really they're already at the beacon. They're going to be at Madison Square Garden in, in three years. And yep. and all they have is a Netflix special. You you can argue that stand up as an art form is worse, but and that they're making you one could make that art case, but you can't make the argument that the stand up as a business is worse. I mean, you're right. The number of incredibly rich stand up comedians, <laughs> but in 2012, a piece that I, I should do again, which is I wanted to just look at like brass tacks. I did this with Megan Angelo yeah. about like what comedians make annually. And it's peanuts, you know, like from about like mm-hmm. the safe. I did. I had like a podcaster, a cruise ship comic, a touring comic, uh, and um, a club comic. And if you did it again, the numbers would be so much higher. Yeah. I mean, the podcaster was Dave Rubin, <laughs> who is who by going right and becoming a you know mm-hmm. uh, like a you know, right, uh, an anti-woke podcaster who tours with Jordan Peterson is like probably making millions. Uh, I don't know, probably over a million. Uh, the easy. I mean, like if you look, I mean, Patreon numbers are listed. Sixty thousand. That was that was yeah. that was. A, I mean, that's the depressing part. The, the person making the most money of that group was the alt comedian. Was Eugene Merman? Yeah. At two hundred thousand. <laughs> um, but I want to ask a few things more about writing before we get into the major trends of the last yes, 10 yes, years. Yes, yes, yes. So I don't want to fully go into. Just us noting how much money right wing podcasters make. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Sorry about that. No, it's fine. It, it will. It, it will have time for it. Um, how, on include as um, you know, beyond criticism, you are you you decided the column would be also reporting, also other forms. How is comedy as a field to report upon? Like you had reported on other industries. I you know like. Do people get it? Do people, are they more protective? Are they less protective? You know, like, comedians love talking shit off the record. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I feel like I, as a comedy journalist, know a lot of rumors. Uh, but I don't know how easy it is to actually then report on any of these things. First of all, if you would ask me, like, my favorite 10 stories that I wrote, yeah. probably most of them would be reported, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And... um the they, um, comedians are actually way more forthcoming and the whole, um, and, you know, the first piece that kind of got a lot of attention that I wrote was about Eddie Brill, mm. um, the the booker for Letterman. And, you know, looking, one of the interesting things he said to me, he what he said, which got him fired, was that I asked him why only one out of the 25 or something like that comedians that you book were women. And he said, because mo- mo- fewer female comedians are authentic, right? Mm. And that caused a big controversy at the time. And was a, it was uh, it shows you how much things have changed that I put that in the second half of the piece. Like the, my editor would not let me, that would end up being in the top now. But the, uh, but the other thing he said, which was very telling, is he said, what I wanted to know is what comedians do you book for Letterman? And he said, the comedians I book are, uh, have a base of reality. And then from reality, you can go silly. Mm-hmm. If you start with a base of fantasy, it's harder to go to reality, which is an interesting thing to grapple with. 
Yeah. And then I saw, but my follow up was, well, would you book Tignatero then, who had just done uh, like the stool bit? And yeah, of, yeah. And he said no. And that to me was actually as notable, like, because no one would say that today, right? Yeah, and yeah. It, it, both things he felt fine saying to a reporter, right? Um, so, and then, you know, I, I, I also like, you know, the early pieces, again, I did these, these process pieces, which I found I would have had real trouble getting access, I think, in other fields, certainly film, yeah, than yeah. I did with like, Amy Schumer or Mike Kaplan. And then there's like, or like even like a, a SNL, I had a piece about, which was very, you know, about black women at, at SNL, the lack of black women at SNL mm-hmm. early on that in which, in which I, you know, because I was really all about like going to these live shows, I said like, this isn't a pipeline problem. There's people like mm-hmm. Sashir Zameda and um, Nicole Byer. And this is like 2012, 2013, right? So, and and there are people we both know now. Um, and one of the incre- and I'm sure you find this too. One of the incredible things about being a re- reporter on comedy is if you just show up enough, if you go to enough shows, you can predict the future. Oh yeah. Like you knew that Pete Davidson was going to be on SNL before that. You knew that those comics were going. Right now, I could t- I have a pretty good educated guess over who will be famous name names that i did have a question and i'll say this too like yeah and this is like a about the uh, podcasters i also feel like what's great what's so wonderful about covering comedy is not only is comedy a great reflection of the culture and politics but it anticipates it so like if you listen to joe rogan you could figure out where right-wing politics is going Mm -hmm. before it does yeah. Like I knew about the, you know, all whatever the next month's conspiracy was going to be for listening to that show. And I just think comedy, I feel very lucky to spend 10 years covering comedy because I feel like it, it's just at the at the yeah. center of everything. Um, so I like really found I, early on, I was like, I want to do this, be, do reporting on it. Um, and it's paid off because I think I think it's. Uh, I, I I think you can really learn a lot about the world through ta- mm-hmm. reporting on it. There's a little bit diminishing returns, I think, but um, but I don't know what what what. It- What's interesting because like you started, and you were the New York Times, right? It's, so it's like you had certain cachet just from the New York Times of it all. So and I imagine there was certain skepticism, but then certain people were like, "Oh, I can. This is a platform I can use to speak." And then like I noticed a shift, not. There wasn't a moment because I don't think I've had one piece then and then I became a whole thing. But like, as I have gotten more established via this podcast, where I've talked to more comedians, where enough comedians have been on this podcast that they they tell other comedians this podcast exists, that comedians are very willing to talk about things like this to me. They and gossip because I have gossip that they don't have. Like yes, yes, yes. it is like any field, a gossipy field, maybe more For so sure. because it just breeds sort of jealousy because it's like there's these little communities and someone gets plucked from it. So having cat having gossip is like a real cachet. Um yeah. and I think there, you know yeah, I think that would be sort of the main thing that I noticed. I mean the thing that what I definitely would agree with is how easy it is to know, just know who the people are going to be. And like, we do the list. We do the comedians who will should know list. And I've been doing it since 2013. That first 2013 list is John Mulaney, Kumail, Hannibal, Chelsea Peretti. I think Bo Burnham was on that first list. Mm. And Broad City, Amy Schumer. You're like, oh my God, you got all these rights. Like, 
it was the easiest list to make on <laughs> earth because they're all right, like literally a year away from TV opportunities. But even now, like there's no surprises on the list. I mean, the example I always think of is like, I went to see, I don't think so, honey in 2000. I don't remember what year it was, but like early, it was maybe the second live show they ever did. I was just, I just saw a show that had 50 comedians on the lineup. I hadn't seen comedy in a while. And I just went to that show and I saw Madame Bowen for f- a second, and I had that sort of uh, that that moment that uh, I always think about, where Sumner Reb- Redstone left Star Wars in the middle to go invest in 20th Century Fox. <laughs> I'm like, these guys are it. Isn't it thrilling though? It's amazing. I mean, that, that, <laughs> that's that, that's one of the fun. That's one of the coolest parts of the job. That that that's why I do when I get to a point where I don't want to be at the Comedy Cellar at yeah. midnight or at bell house with some la comic i've never heard of then i gotta stop because that i still am excited about that i searched that moment like a fucking drug addict looking for a hit and it, it's it gets harder and harder to find those but i think what's what's good about comedy is you can real like i feel like i'm almost never wrong in a way yeah. that i think a person like not like i'm a hunt i can't guarantee someone's gonna be a super like a generationally right, right. famous person, but you feel like they're going to be whatever. Um, th- I feel like a an equivalent person could not go see a concert that a hundred people are at and be like, "Oh, that person's going to be Ed Sheeran." Hundred percent. The inter- the interesting conversations, and I often have them with people who are like managers or agents or people who also cast yeah. a wide net, and they also it's their job, so they think is all right. You can tell who's gonna jump a class yeah but then from going from that class to like the mega stardom or or just another level that has a lot more to do with strategy mm-hmm. and choices and press and that kind of thing and that though that's also fun to think about i mean i'm sure you find it. it's like yeah. why does one like you see people who are like the next iteration of that character mm-hmm. yeah and the reasons are complex some it has to do with like Social media or getting so much to do with their not fitting the moment, whatever it is. But the, uh, but yeah, I mean, that first seeing somebody new, I mean, I, I what I remember, I had heard about Hannah Gatsby mm. from Australian Fringe, uh, and somebody, some booker had told me about it a year before she came here. So when her, her first performance of Nanette, I think you were there and like as well, or you would, yeah. Yeah, it was just like, oh, this obviously is going to be, I, you know, yeah. I was there the first performance. It was, and there's, there's something just, you know, that can also blind you. Yeah. Because you can get overly excited about something that is, um, and, you know, that is new. And there is, that's another interesting problem of criticism is the prejudice. And I think this is a, a fair criticism of me um, yeah. that I, that um, there is a bias in journalism towards the new Um and so you have mid-career artists who are actually do, like better, who get overlooked, and it's harder to figure out ways to write about them um, than the famous or the new. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of those things where it comes to the strategy of my job, which is like, all right, it actually takes more creativity to figure out how to write about those mid-career people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about it in terms of Chris Rock a lot, because I think Chris Rock is the consistency of his level of standup is incredibly high. Um, And it's absurd that of the sort of variety of 
absurdity of like Dave Chappelle's sort of rebirth is his like willingness to be both an underdog and call himself the greatest comedian of all time. And, and, and then Chris Rock is sort of here putting out, not, it's hard to say whatever best work is, but like keep on putting out level of work that adds to the sort of mythos of being a great comedian. Love hard or get the fuck out. Okay. You hear me? I'm telling you right now. If you're in a relationship, all you should be doing is fucking and going places. That's all you should be doing. Having sex and traveling. Fucking and going places. You should be coming and going. That's all you should be doing. But it's hard to know how to talk about it because the story of hey, did you know Chris Rock's a great comedian? It's not, it's a harder story to tell. Like you wrote the story about how he re-edited his special. And I, I love that piece. But it does feel like, especially because comedy comedians are so on Twitter and so are part of the conversation that like, it does, f- I, you know, have a hard time, especially as I'm working on a book. How do I zoom out from the conversation? Because I do think the conversation is dictated by new and controversial because it's yep. Twitter is shaping it. We'll be right back with more Jason Zinman, where we'll discuss the tension over what even is a comedian anymore. Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? Or what was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes in Wikipedia with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you'd learn that that's the science-y term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link to link careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... (laughs) 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Now back to Jason Zinnemann on how the internet has changed the definition of a comedian. So um, I want to talk about what you've noticed like and it's hard like to talk about what you have noticed while in it is much harder than i don't know what it's like i'll say this which is sometimes i'll talk to people who are journalists who are in comedy who maybe like maybe watch a special year or period they'll hear about nanette they'll hear that Chappelle's doing something they'll hear about bo burnham but they don't even know to even like watch a john mulaney because he's just sort of not even getting that where he's fully transcended media what they'll ask me is like how did this happen how did comedy be- get here where you're talking to me that it's a big deal 
that all these things are big stories. Um, you know, like, and I have a, a, a million opinions on the other side. When I asked friend Leibowitz, she said, I think partially it happened because, uh, well, I'm sure I'm going to kill for this because of a general lowering of standards. So <laughs> obviously if there's no such thing as great and everything is great and everything's important, then comedians are great artists. Now, the truth is that most comedians are not artists. They're entertainers. There is a difference. Mm. I know you're not allowed to say this. There, the one upside to being as old as I am, I say it, what do I care? You're not going to ask me the problem. Yeah. I don't care. So, you know, uh, the truth is that most comedians are entertainers. Some are artists. Okay? To me, the difference between an entertainer and an artist is, are you mostly interested in the audience's response? Uh, <laughs> that's her job is to say things like that. Um, my job is to say the opposite. I guess, how do you answer that question? I assume maybe people ask it like, wh- how did comedy get here? What's, before we get to where we are, like, how, how did, what do you think it is? What are the big things that got to this place where undeniably it is so centered in cultural conversations, both sort of big and small? Well, that's such a huge question. I mean, there's so yeah. many. Literally, it's my full book is about this one. Yeah, question. right, right. I mean, we, we, I think the, you know, we talked about some of it. I do think tech, the, the comedian's yeah. embrace of technology and, and entrepreneurialism is part of it. Um, and in a culture where your ability to adapt to new platforms is more important than ever, yeah. that that's key. I also think that, you know, the, the cultural discourse has become more political and topical and nobody mm. handles political and topical as quickly as comedians. Um, I hate to say it, but I think, but like if you were to it's it's hard to look back at this like critical era and not say, and not say that like Louis CK is the most important figure. Mm. Like people have sort of now forgotten, you know, once the time story came out about him, he became one thing. People forgot like how radical the, the 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 treatment of him was the the opinion like nobody did more probably to one what we're talking about experiment i mean he, he experimented with a lot of different technologies yeah. but also he made people take um comedy very seriously as an art form he catapulted tignatero you know, who did a lot yeah. of huge shifts, which, you know, you've yeah. talked about before. Um, you know, he was the one who saw that special. He was on Twitter, you know, he, in those early, <laughs> like, controversies, like, he was always part of it. He was like... Yeah, yeah. It, the Daniel Tosh story. I'm watching TV, and Tosh is making me laugh, so I wrote a tweet saying, you always, you, your show makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. And then I put it down, and then, like, two days later, I come home and I read these, like, bloggers and, like, Hollywood reporters, you know, uh, Louis C.K. defends Daniel Tosh amid rape joke controversy. <laughs> I had no idea. He got in trouble for making some jokes about rape, and I didn't know about it. And so I'm a defender of rape. That's what everybody says now. And there, I've read all this stuff like, shame on you, Louis C.K., and... Well, I'll never watch your show. You're a rape apologist. I've been called a rape apologist because I said hi to a guy. Because I said, hey, nice show to a guy who everybody was mad at. The, obviously, Louis, if you talk to any TV critic, yeah. the show was a game changer. Um, 
it's it's one of these weird things where like he he did play this, and then of course you know, you know the the kind of culture war aspect of it that I think is key to the 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 relevance of comedy. That I mean, this is a thing. I think this is an undeniable fact that um, comedy has a right wing mm. in a way that other forms don't, and this country isn't only left wing. Yeah. Right. So just on a pure cultural relevance front there are people who are being served by comedy mm. that are not being served in their opinion by um you know theater yeah right um there's no i mean they're like david mamet but there really there isn't really a right outside of mamet and a few others i mean you could argue that certain you could certainly make the case that certain theater is is right wing but that is is a key part of to answer your question of like how did comedy stay relevant? Um, that um, Chappelle is is uh, you know being talked about all this because he found a new constituency, yeah. uh, and um, so there's all that. Um, and then I think there's just like the underlying again. This is just boring, but it's just like it's cheap. Yeah. And the it's 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 why it started on it. You know, it big on HBO when it started and big on Fox and. And, and, you know, I, something else I think about, like, a lot of our cultural conversation is about um, identity and about whether about race or gender or sexuality. And I suppose I do think that, like, stand-up was sort of ahead of the curve on that. Like, when I was a kid, when you watch, like, the, the political returns, yeah. they didn't analyze, like, what working-class white people mm-hmm. thought versus black women in the Midwest, thought, right? But you know who did break the world down? <laughs> Like that stand-up Jeff, comics. Yeah, Jeff Foxworthy was like, this is what this is what redneck identity looks like. If you own a home that is mobile and 14 cars that aren't, <laughs> you might be a redneck. <laughs> if you take your dog for a walk and you both use the tree at the corner, <laughs> you might be a redneck. If you refer to the fifth grade as my senior year, you might be a redneck. If you prefer car keys to Q-tips, you groan, but you know what I'm talking about. If the most common phrase heard in your house is somebody go jiggle the handle, you might be a redneck. If you've ever taken a beer to a job interview, you might be a redneck. If you see a sign that says, say no to crack, and it reminds you to pull your jeans out. <laughs> you might just be a redneck. Especially if you look at the 90s, post the comedy boom, you see this explosion of ultimately what you can call identity groups. There's the, the explosion of... of black comedy scenes in LA, Atlanta, New York, uh, Chicago, you see the blue collar comedy tour. You s- alternative comedy in many ways is essentially a liberal bubble right. identity group, right? It's not seen that way. It's seen as just a different form of comedy. But when you look at that constituency, it was very much the audience and the performer, are the same type of people. And we represent each other and we talk about the same uh, and, I think that is interesting where it's like because comedy, what we think of as sort of contemporary comedy that started both minstrel shows and then vaudeville is so rooted in first black identity, but then also sort of 
turn of the century Jewish identity and Irish identity. Like talking about your culture is such a major part of the vocabulary of the medium. Right. So when you when you think of the major stories or the major what uh, major changes of the last ten years, what are the things that stand out to you? Hmm. Um. Well, I guess to go back to that point about what Eddie Brill said. I think that like represented this, and I think you're on the same page as yeah. that. We're like, we, it represented this larger idea of like good comedy has to do with truth and authenticity. And I feel like we've gone away from that. And that's, that's, um, you know, the, 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 you know, I, I, there's all sorts of, there's still all this experimentation, but the palette and the possibilities are much wider mm-hmm. than there ever have been before. Um, and, um, I think it's harder to, to define, the challenge is it's hard to define what comedy is anymore. There, I'm, I, I, I don't know what the center of it is. You know, I don't know. Do you know what it is? Like it's, it's it, like, what would I, I, when I think of, yeah. Or like, this is comedy right now. This is the thing. This is the SNL thing. And I feel like you end up talking about SNL less than I do, partly because I think SNL is the one thing the times covers. Yes. Like it, it is because there's such a less clarity of like, what are the things there's so many comedians who are playing Madison square garden that are completely stylistically different, culturally different from each other that you can't be like, well, the biggest comedians are all X. Right. Um, and then you just SNL becomes this thing. And because it constantly gets new cast members and cause currently they don't get rid of old cast members. <laughs> it has these things of you have, it's a rare show where you're seeing comedy of a 25 year old and comedy of a 45 year old. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't actually know if those are the numbers of the youngest and oldest cat. Well, like, please don't destroy. The oldest member of Please Don't Destroy is 24. Right? right. That was enough. And then I don't know how old Keenan is, but Keenan, I'm sure he's in his 40s. Right. So there is something of, which is why people are always like, why SNL's increasingly become this lightning rod, despite people constantly complaining about it, is it feels like that mixed with the fact of who hosts, you're like, I guess these are the people. These are the. I mean, I think you know it might be worth talking about. I think one thing that was telling was this feud with Michael Che mm. and Tim Dillon, and here's why I think it's interesting. Right, this is why because yeah. there's a genuine like tension in yeah. kind of club comedy and, and between these routes to success that Michael Che suddenly is like the old school route. Yeah. Which is to go through SNL and then get a thing on HBO Max, whatever. And Tim Dillon is the new school. Right? And, and yeah, you know yeah. the interesting thing is Tim Dillon was an alt com was in alt comedy. Yeah. He get, didn't get past a comedy seller, which yeah, was yeah. what Michael Che called him out for. Right? He went by doing his own thing through his podcasting, makes much more money than Michael Che does. So when he was criticizing Michael Che, he was sort of criticizing from he probably thought he was punching up. Yeah. But Michael Che sees that he makes much more money than he does, has a reach. He probably thinks he's, I don't know, I don't think he's punching up, but he's putting him in his place, being like, look, yeah. you, 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 you know, you failed as a comedian, which is, you know, objectively true if you think what success is, is passing at the seller, yeah. which for many years was what success yeah. was for this certain class. So there's all this going on underneath that dispute. And I think, I, I think, you know, Tim Dillon, who's part of what he does is sort of, uh, I think he embraces a lot of this 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 the fights of it but i think that i you know i think that one wounded him 
because I think there was something there where he knows that like, oh yeah, this is what part of the comedy community thinks of me. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know who's right. There's no one right person. Like is the future SNL? Like, I don't know. Is like in 20 years, SNL still going to be at the center or are podcasts going to be the center? I don't know. It's hard because the, ultimately it's, I, I call it the center almost by default where all other possible centers have faded away. And like, it is still the most prompt, you know, like regardless of whether the ratings are. And again, and no matter quality or whatever quality even means, it just sort of as whatever monoculture was fades away, it becomes a bigger and bigger deal. And not even by doing anything different than other, just staying around and being around right. for 50 years. And the fact it, that it can in- introduce people to new talent over and over again it like look i know bo i knew bowen five years ago i thought he was a star i had no real power look i had him do vulture stuff but i wasn't a launching pad he gets an snl and then snl gets credit as they should for like being the platform i mean like you see it already with the new cast members on snl this year it's like James Austin Johnson was like the internet's Trump impersonator. And was like, SNL sucks. This is what's actually funny. It's this guy. Here's the proof. He gets an SNL. His Trump impression is now on SNL. Like there's no one more weird and avant-garde and whatever the opposite of mainstream than Sarah Sherman was. She does a weekend update thing. And everyone's like, she is part of it. Um, And, but it is definitively you know like when i try to i try to ask lauren this when i interviewed him which it was like the show snl was created to be anti-establishment it was a it's 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 it considers itself as counterculture still right right, right. and that's his perspective and i'm like well how how do you how do you approach the show now that like when people think of the culture they think of snl and he sort of doesn't really have an answer for that because how how would he because he's just doing the same thing he's been doing but i think tim dylan his entire premise, even like if you were ignore the sort of right wing parts and the Rush Limbaugh parts and the vaccine parts of it, exists to be like, you know, like the real alternative. Oh, where it's like almost the Fox News thing of like mainstream media tells you this, but this is the real right. stuff. It's like how is Fox News part not part of the mainstream media? It's well, that's the- my take on it, is that like it's anyone who says the media says is they're already telling you something as a lie. Right. Yeah. Because the media isn't that anymore. Like Fox News is tremendously powerful. No, nobody who's paying attention doesn't think that's true. They're part of the media. Right. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I agree with you to a point about SNL. There is this because it's so rare to yeah. pick somebody out of one of these worlds and then expose them to a much bigger one. SNL is incredibly powerful and seems like at the center. But I actually think if you like zoom out even farther I I'm not sure it is. Yeah. Like I I think it's one of many power centers. Um and you know if you look at the new people, the people you mentioned, right? The reason they found them was from the internet. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. They found them from, you know, going viral on Twitter. They didn't it used to be there were these like, you know, institutions they passed through. That was the real turning point, I feel. And in a way, it was a giving up of power for those uh improv houses and yeah. the take and then the kind of part of this broader movement of democratizing a power, which is what gave Tim Dillon his career. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's true. Because, like, 10 years ago, alternative often included these improv theaters, right? We're like, like, UCB was considered an alternative space. And 
and in many ways structured itself that way and just used it being an alternative space to not to justify not paying people. We're like, we're just we're just an art space and we're just like giving people a platform, blah, blah, blah. Right. And and I think, you know, part of the reason they were able to pull that off was enough generation of people came through and then became famous. So they're like, by the time that they would realize they cared, they were already famous and they forgot about it anyway. You know, to lose that, I mean, like, when did you write your piece about, hey, they don't pay people? Oh, that was, I think, 2014, maybe? 20, 2015. Wow. Some, the, and um... It's like, and that mixed with what cool was, one, just the fact that people lived in Brooklyn. They moved, you know, like, just like people like, I don't want to go to Manhattan. But what cool, like, they became whatever establishment was. And cool looked different. Yep. And time went on and like kept on cool both cool looking different and also cool meant equity and pe- treating people fairly right which is right. great like that's right. a nice part of the trend in comedy where like treating people well is now like part of what it means to be like cool yeah yeah which is you're good. right you're 100 right like i do think that you know that is a big shift like ucb was it used to be like Oh, you knew who'd be famous because they were like the star at UCB at the time. And then like, you know, like I remember knowing someone was taking classes and like, oh, there's this guy, Donald Glover. He's funnier than everybody. And then it's like Donald Glover became this thing. Um, well, what I think happened. that is now is like, I mean, I would like one of the secrets of my my great luck is I by happenstance moved to like a block away from Union Hall. Yeah. <laughs> and also a few blocks away from Bell House and Littlefield. Yeah. And I, if you really look at like the people who became stars in the last couple of years, did more of them come from the Comedy Cellar or from Union Hall? It's definitely Union Hall. I mean, like to me, Union Hall is, it's also just like, I mean, I love it. It's my favorite venue. It's just like yeah. this perfect space, perfect size. Phone service doesn't work down there. <laughs> right. That's a good point. That's a really important point. But like Z-Way... I, I, I went when I last time I went to to, uh, to Union Hall. There was somebody in front of me in line who was talking about, "Oh, I saw Z-Way here before." They, like that's the way they that that is the yeah. business model of the comedy club, of the Laugh yeah. Factory, of the comedy store. Oh, I saw this person when they once they lose that, that's a big threat, um, and you're kind of more likely to see. I, mean, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I'm ready to say that categorically, but. I do think those spaces have, it used to, it was, for a while it was UCB, yeah. um, but I think now, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it too loudly because I, I want, it's hard to get a seat at, at Union Hall <laughs> already, but I hate standing at the shows at oh, Bell I House. I like standing. That's my ideal. I, I, not Bell House. Bell House, I prefer to sit, but the Union Hall, I like standing because you can kind of see all over the entire crowd. I will say, like, from what I've heard, the Comedy Cellar has realized that there's these all these comedians that are in Brooklyn and they need to book a lot more of them. Like I, I remember seeing someone and someone's like, "Oh, do you know they're at the Comedy Cellar now?" I was like, "This person, this Comedy Cellar includes this person as well as X person who I think is a hack from forty years ago, or whatever." Yep. And I mean, if the Comedy Cellar is realizing it, you know, that means like oh, it yeah. is loud that something is happening. That like, oh, it's too late. It's not just like the alternative scene of like whatever. They'll come here when they're ready. It's like, oh, these people were not planning on coming. These people have an antagonistic relationship to the ideas of comedy clubs. Like, there's because unlike even alternative com- comedians of the past, like because it's a young generation who's been able to 
so easily access comedy not on comedy clubs like truly like it's internet and like if they went to they have their favorite comedians and they're from the internet they're not just like they went to a show like as a result the cachet of the comedy club is being lost the comedy clubs have to sort of figure out how to be like cool in that way oh totally i think it's even it's gotten even one thing i've detected which is even worse than than hostility is indifference yeah some just don't even care like you talk to like generation a little like you know Jacqueline Novak or something, you know, they're like, they, they, they know they're not, she knows she's not, doesn't want mm-hmm. to be David Tell, but she lists the study as David Tell. Now it's just like, it's not part of the even equation. I mean, a, a big turn, there's also, we're also kind of, there's, there's something provincial. I remember I did a piece on Grace Helbig. This was a big mm-hmm. turning point in my thinking. I forgot, 2016, 2017. And I went to LA and she's a YouTuber. Yeah. And she, she but she started at UCB. And she was like, yeah, there was a, t- you know, last year I would have cared. The goal was to make a t- to get a TV show. Now it's like, it'd be nice, but that's not really important anymore. Like that's not success, right? Like, the, yeah. like getting X number of like, and that's a whole other world, which doesn't care about Union Hall or yeah. this, thing, you know, and maybe that's the, you know, may- and maybe there's that there's easier to monetize that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who. I mean, like, that's the thing. I think there's even what I think of as comedy, and I probably have a much more strict definition of it than younger people who would include a YouTuber who never performs live. Like I used to be, oh, a comedian is someone who performs live, even if their main medium is blah, blah, blah. And I think I've I I, I definitely have to accept that it's just like not the case. I mean, like (laughs) it's either that or decide to be an old crank who's like, if you can't kill at Caroline's and you don't count whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, the hard thing with our jobs or, and the hard thing is, is sort of because the history of comedy is not known as much as the history of like rock and roll music. And because comedy from the sixties does not age like the Beatles does. Like you, it's hard to then demand a YouTuber be like, you gotta study Shelly Berman. If you watch Shelly Berman, you would actually like get it. And like, I think Shelly Berman is really interesting. And I think he is, but like. I there's you just want to laugh at it. So you, what would they understand? So it is hard that maybe I'm naive, but I I do think that the ones that stick around, the ones that do stick around, and it's funny. I have a daughter who's twelve, who's and it's a hundred percent true for her age group. Culture is TikTok. Yeah, everything else forget it. Like all the the and it's um, but I I do think in whatever field it is the people who stick around are all, most of them are sort of students of it and will eventually study Shelley Berman. Yeah. <laughs> I hope. More than anybody. I feel like I, well, it's, I'll say this. I was like, do I want to get a whole Shelley? I think the appreciating Shelley Berman is an important narrative, a, 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 a retelling of the history of stand-up comedy that starts with Shelley Berman as this sort of big deal opposed to Mort Saul and Lenny, especially Lenny Bruce, where yep. you're focusing on like, oh, comedy is a personal medium of personal expression and that mixes pathos and instead of comedy is where people curse and push and transgress, right? You tell a different story and start with Shelley Berman. Interesting. That is a useful rehistory. It's sort of like, I think I was talking to some clean comedian about this. I can't remember who it was, but like, Maybe it was Brian Regan. The reason that because comedy 
especially for so long, has been defined by it's the narrative of Lenny Bruce begets George Carlin and Richard Pryor that begets whatever all this like that has been what has been prized that we miss that also there has been always been comedians who have been like Shelley Berman, who have been more sensitive, who've been telling personal stories. And that is and that should be held to the same can be put in the same pedestal as comedy that is um transgressive right like the yes. idea that a, the, the highest comedians must be transgressive is a way to discredit a lot of what i think are the great comedians that have ever existed this is why I, shelly berman is a bugaboo of mine i guess I, I love that theory and I, I love that 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 sort of version of history of comedy history i think and i also think to building on what you said before which is sort of connected to your question of how things have changed i do think there is the idea of transgression as a as a unquestioned good, mm. as a goal, is more. Um, there's more skepticism about that now than there was, and I think I have more skepticism about it than I did ten years ago. Although I'm not ready to abandon transgression by any stretch, uh, in in um, a- as like an exciting force in art, um, but. I think that, you know, there was a time when like the 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 George Carlin quote of like, you know, oh, the job of the comedian is to go to the line and then cross it mm-hmm. was, you know, that was sort of God's word. Yeah. Um and that clearly is not the case anymore. Is that So let's talk about Dave Chappelle. So <laughs> I think that's part of this story. At least for me, like I think watching Dave Chappelle's arc has changed my opinion about like what comedian, how comedians say and how they use the line, whatever the line is, whatever we mean the line. And you wrote an ebook about him when he was sort of away from the public spotlight. He had never really stopped, but he was not around New York and LA as much essentially was what it meant. And he didn't release things. And then, you know, your the ebook comes out. He does the radio city shows. He does all these Netflix specials. He's now where he is at how what do you what do you make of it um and how does it relate to how you view what you want a comedian to do um takes a sigh takes a my thing. least favorite subject um no i well, we um, have to if no one if we don't talk about it we have to like you're right like you're right and and i mean look i i i've written about dave Chappelle so many i mean like um uh i i i actually think um one piece that I wrote that I think that was dis widely disliked and subtweeted, but mm. I think has aged very well. It was a negative review of Horace and Pete, mm. and the broader argument, which is Louis C.K.'s self-distributed sort of homage to like Eugene O'Neill, um, yeah. which is exactly the kind of thing I would like. But my my argument was sort of like provocatively headlined, like the defense of the network suit. And the argument was that, like, in the absence of gatekeepers and as gatekeepers have sort of faded away, which is like a really pejorative term for what we, you know, you could just call them producers or direct. In the absence of them, talented artists are doing really indulgent work that is full of promise, but, you know, full full of many more flaws than when they had active, smart producing 
or directing. And that was true for a horse. And I remember at the time that was not popular. A lot, a lot of critics were like, ah, this is back when Louis could do no wrong. I mean, I remember the subtweets that were like yeah. the, the, uh, and I said, Chappelle, this is, you know, also I'd seen him. I always see him when he came in town, he's doing these long rambling three hour shows. That's there are bits, which are interesting. And there are bits that are not, there's, there's no editing anymore. No one is going to say no to him. And yeah. you sort of see like what's ha- it's all that that's obviously only continued. You know, he has a unique ability to do that because he has such stature. Nobody yeah. else can go into a comedy club and talk for four hours and no and bump everybody. For uh, I mean, for the most, no one else does that. That's yeah. uh, and um, I don't think you can say. I mean, in a weird way, he is very personal. He's doing like he again like the. The old standards of like doing exactly what you want to do, yeah, um, being willing to be dark, go without a punchline, be get go into the, like the deepest things that you care about and feel uncomfortable about. You know, it is also true that like while I've been criticizing his trans jokes for years, it is also true that there is a lot of people talking about the changes going on in this mm. issue that that you that is not reflected in the public sphere, which is part of why I think that special resonated even among people yeah. who disagree with it. Um, yeah. So there's a power to transgression. There's a power to, I just think he's a, like the most extreme example of somebody who um, is just become wildly indulgent and repetitive. Yeah. And as a consequence, it's like, it, there was a point when I was like, Oh, I used to love this guy. And now he's like, a little. it's not quite living up to and I, I'm like of the stage now. I'm just like, I'm bored. I find it very boring, um, and I and I resent, you know, how even weighing in on it makes me feel like I'm part of this, yeah, yeah, yeah. his commercial strategy and part of this cultural morality tale, you know, that that you're sort of the scold. It's like I can try to get out of it by saying this is boring, which is what I actually think about the comedy, and I think you do too. Yeah, um, yeah. But you can't escape it. Like, yeah, I mean, that's the, that is the trick, which is like. And that's and it's even the hard thing is like if you try to have a conversation in a lot of places, people like it's just because you're triggered or you're offended or whatever, which is like and I don't want to even discredit that perspective. I used to be like, I'm above it all. I'm just talking about the crap. I was like, no, I'm done this. I also think it's maybe immoral to do. But the main thing is if anyone put out seven hours of comedy in four years it will not be good. I yes. think we've realized there's, let's say he even is the greatest commune of all time. Right. It, it, I, I, we've now learned the greatest commune of all time has can't release seven full hours. It's just, you can't work on it. It's just not doable. It's just math. Yeah. It's just math. It's just math. It's just math. It's math. And it's like, why anyone would think otherwise. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and then, you know, it's, I mean, there is some continuity in that, you know, as someone who's wrote a book on his, you know, in the 90s, he, he you know, his, his sort of classic move was like, I shouldn't say this, mm. but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about like, oh, I should probably, you know, like I got something that I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to tell you. He was doing that in the 90s too, right? And then, you know, and, you know, when he was in, um, when Deaf Comedy Jam was, was dominant in the, in the, in the eighties and early nineties, he criticized it as being limiting for black people. Right. And the, uh, he was always scrupulous on trying to maintain his outsider status. Yeah. And I'll tell you what really makes me, um, 
also makes me realize like, okay, artistically, he's really being like, he's really falling short is looking at Larry David. Mm. Like, I don't know if you've been watching this current season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, but Larry David is, is doing like, I think what Larry David is doing is way more, is just, is way more transgressive and, and dangerous in, in terms of the like cultural standards of the moment yeah. and completely getting away with it. Hey, so the last time I saw you, you said the next time you see me at the club, which is now, uh-huh. to remind you about the $6,000 you owe me and that you would uh, have a check and pay me. That's, that's close, Larry. You, you saw me and you reminded me of the $6,000 and I pulled out my checkbook and I wrote you a check for $6,000. What? Yeah. I paid you at the farm shop. No, no, you didn't. Of course I did. Dennis, you didn't pay me at farm shop. I paid you. I, pay, I wrote a check to you for $6,000. No, you did not. You didn't. I would remember that, okay, if you paid me. I remember what you wore. You wore a green sweater, tan pants, a blue and white checkered shirt. You had an almond decaf latte and a bran muffin. Now, if I know all that, don't you think I would know if you paid me? Why would I lie about that? I'll tell you what else. I complimented you on that shirt. You didn't compliment me. I most certainly did. You've never complimented me in your life. There was never anything to compliment you about. Ask around and see if anyone else remembers being complimented by you. I compliment people's outfits all the time. You're a bad guy, Larry. I'm not the bad guy. You are the bad guy. You're the bad guy. No, I pay my debts. I pay my debts. Larry, leave the guy alone. Come on, man. What are you doing, man? What? What are you hassling him for money? He's got dementia. So what? Dementia's not a license to steal, is it? Well, how do we know you didn't forget? What are you talking about? We heard that you ran into a sliding glass door recently. Yeah, I walked into the door. I didn't see the door. How could I? It looks like air. Everybody's done it. Like, there's like no criticism. People could do I think some of the stuff is hilarious. And I think the fact that he's been doing, he's at this level after 22 years is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, But they're both have the same issue, which is that they, or they're both, they're trying, they're trying to find like an out, they're they're at the top and they're trying to still play the outsider. I find Larry David doing it much more deftly than yeah. Chappelle. Yeah, because he he has to make a TV show, and there's other people there in the room. Yes. <laughs> We're running out of time. I want to do quick questions that um, put you on the spot of answering. They're not that pointed, but um, who makes you laugh? Like, are you still able to laugh? And what? How? I mean, I am. I'll say off a record. I go. The, we have a weekly comedy show at Union Hall, and I'm laughing at a story. I'm laughing at jokes. You know, we have these. It's hosted by Marsha Belsky, Jay Jordan, and Zach Zimmerman. I'm laughing at jokes they tell every week. Um, you know, like I. It's the thing that I'm most grateful for that I'm a generous laugher still. Where are you at laughing, and what makes you laugh? I don't laugh as much as I used to, but I still laugh. I still yeah. laugh. Um, and I probably laugh at more like weird stuff than the normal person. I mean, I'm writing about the new season of how to with John Wilson. Like that makes me laugh when it's just some of those like unexpected mm-hmm. jokes. Laugh. But I, I also like, I mean, I saw Cat Williams play Barclays, which was, you know, I think he, I, 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 it's this serious failing that I have not written mm. at length at Cat Williams because he's a major artist who like really makes me laugh and um you know i think hasn't gotten the respect he deserves um 
and um and i think is like a renegade in a much more real way yeah, um, yeah, yeah. honestly um but uh but yeah i still you know there's still all sorts of, i mean i you know i think part of the even if i'm not like physically laughing like uh you know people can there's a certain school of thought that like there's nothing new under the sun yeah but i i'm i think once you get that cynical you should stop yeah doing this job like there's always something new constant like a new spin on something uh you know a a slightly different framing of an old idea um and you know as we talked about before like that's the excitement of this job like yeah. if you lose that that's the core um requirement is the curiosity about that and if anything during the pandemic i had that I realized like that's actually why I do this. Like yeah. I and why I love my job. Like I love comedy is changing so fast. There's so many different new things. It's much more novelty than is in theater. Um yeah. and um that uh I still yeah, I, I still find all all kinds of things. Once if I start naming, it's just like, you know, yeah. I'm leaving everyone out. But but there's um there, there there's I still, you know, I guess what I love watching somebody think through an idea mm. in a funny way. Like that's just endlessly entertaining to me. And that's ultimately like my favorite comedian seeing that. But was... Yeah. Um, what do you think is a blind spot you have and how have you dealt with it? Either be it taste wise or just the nature of, you know, it is a, I asked Catherine who reviews specials for us and I was like, and she was like, that's the thing that I think about a lot. So I was wondering if you had similar feelings. Oh yeah. I think about it constantly. I think to be like a fair critic, you have to be, you know, aware of your taste and, you know, constantly examining your own bias. I mean, I think we, some of them are like cultural. Some of mm -hmm. them are, you know, uh, aesthetic you know, like I said, like I, I have a bias towards the new. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you know, and some of it is is age, frankly. Like, I think that I have to work harder to uh, understand a 22 year old TikTok comedian uh, than I yeah. did, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. The uh, and but the way that operates is actually more complex than it's often presented because if anything i feel like oh well, i think we've talked about this before but i think the, there's there you can overcompensate for that yeah. um and then knock down the things that you don't have a blind spot to too much right um so i think a lot of my job is to i frankly work harder on the uh spend more time with the art that isn't my like you would say like oh if it's like I'm a young person on TikTok. I'm spending more time trying to understand that than Ilbert's. Yeah. If it's a, if it's you know comedians of a different culture, different like, I think there's different kinds of critics, and not everyone has to be have Catholic taste. But I I want to at least my audience is broad, yeah, and I want to try to serve. I mean, when you go see Cat Williams, it's interesting. Like. There's a lot more white people at a Dave Chappelle show than a Cat Williams show. This is not a small group of people. This is yeah. Barclays. The fact that I haven't done a column on this massive figure and we've done so many things on Dave Chappelle is a blind spot. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite joke? Like a street joke or a dad joke? You've written about dad jokes. 
the um just or the whatever one you think of when I ask the question. What do you think? Well, um, I mean, like the first joke that I ever uh, committed to memory, which was I think was told by my older brother when I was a little kid, um, was um, well, there was two jokes. There was one incredibly dirty one uh, mm-hmm. called Paul the Pimple Popper, that basically was the uh, you know a sort of like aristocrats like in that the 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 core of it was like the journey of this uh, guy Paul the Pimple Popper yeah. to pop a pimple, and it had, mm-hmm. the point was to be as gross as you possibly can. Yeah, and and then there's the other one, which was a guy dies, uh, goes to hell, and uh, the devil meets him, and he's like, "All right, you have three doors to be in for the rest of your life, or for the rest of eternity." He opens the first door, and it's a bunch of people uh, standing on their heads on a wood floor. He closes mm-hmm. it, and he goes to the second door, and a bunch of people standing on their heads on a brick floor. He closes that. He opens the third one, and it's a bunch of people sitting in their chairs, drinking coffee, chatting with each other, having a good time, but they're ankle deep in shit, mm-hmm. right? So he closed the door and the devil turns to him. And he's like, all right, which, uh, which door do you want? All right. And the guy's like, well, you know, I don't want to be sitting in shit for the rest of eternity, but you know, I'd rather be, you know, talking to friends than sitting on my head. So he's like, all right, door number three. He's like, door number three, it is. The devil mm-hmm. ushers him in. He sits down, he goes there. And then like 10 minutes later, there's like a knock at the door. The devil opens it up. He's like, okay, coffee break over. Stand at your heads now. So that was close to my heart because I only knew two jokes by memory yeah. for like the first 10 years of my life. So I told that a lot. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything. Yes, this was super fun, Jesse. I, I obviously always t- enjoy talking to you. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can read Jason Zinman in the New York Times. By Jason's two books, Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night, and Shock Value, How a Few Centric Outsiders Gave Us Nightmares, Conquered Hollywood, and Invented Modern Horror. He also has a Kindle single, Searching for Dave Chappelle. Follow Jason on Twitter, at Zinneman, and on Instagram, at J. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Godfrey Shikishin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Fox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Support for this episode of Good One came from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. WikiHole takes listeners on a wild journey through the most bizarre catacombs of everyone's favorite crowdsourced online encyclopedia. Listen to host Darcy Carden and her funniest comedian friends dive deep into the obscure, the absurd, and the curiously inane. There's truly something for everyone with a taste for oddly fascinating information. Whether you're interested in Crystal Pepsi, Lenny Kravitz, or how Carden's fear of dolphins connects to sets and hats. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? 
<clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. <laughs> 